Thank you for praying. Amen. Well, thank you for that update, honey. Um, Scott, why don't you come and let's just take a moment and pray. Can you just come on up here? Um, Pastor Scott is a, a wayward child of ours. He is, um, he's not up in the room with us very often, uh, down working with the Spanish ministry. But um, we're supposed to be out of town today, but uh, Pastor Hamp is filling in for him downstairs. And um, so just wanted you to get a good look at this beautiful face right here. It's a little bit of a stretch. But... <laughs> I'm just loving you, brother. <laughs> so you, would you pray for Frankie and then just the opening of the service, too, brother? That'd be great. Absolutely. All right, so um, just want to share. Most of you know, but um, on Wednesday nights, we have a group that we call young-ish adults. Um, we get together. And I'm not sure, Pastor, is your DIA stop for the... No, we got one more week, okay. and then we'll so, stop. So our group is going all the way through. Welcome, everybody. So sorry for those of our church family online that you probably couldn't hear Scott real well. We didn't pass off the microphone, so that's our fault. We're still learning how to do all of this, but I appreciate you tuning in today. We certainly miss you not being with us physically, but we're just so glad that we can have this opportunity to to uh, share life together in the church. So all of what you just heard just a few moments ago, yes, another, I got a couple other announcements. I'll make this for Missy right now, um, but it is a good segue for us into the message today. Uh, Missy has been working with uh, getting the kids together for a Christmas, um, what are we going to call that, Missy? Program. Program, something to bless us with, with the children, and that's going to be right after the service again today for a quick uh, little update. Sunday before Christmas is when that'll be. Yeah, so right after the service, okay? So um, 
Yes, Carl. It's back there. Thank you, Carl. Great. Thank you, Carl. Yeah, again, for those of you online, he's just talking about the offerings that you can bring in, and there's a box here for us. If you do desire to bring in an offering, we'd greatly appreciate that, certainly, to continue the work of the Lord. Uh, you can bring that in during the week. You can mail it in. You can go online to our website and uh, do it that way as well, any way that you choose to do so. Okay, so uh, there are several things we want to make mention of. Again, don't forget to continue to pray for Brother Danny. Uh, as we're looking to affirm him as an elder. That date's coming up really soon in this month, or the month of December anyway, so continue to pray for that. A couple other things I've mentioned over the last couple weeks. We can reiterate those at another time. Uh, men, if you are interested in joining us on Friday night, that's this Friday night coming up at 6 p.m. at Josh Grimsley's house, we'd be greatly pleased to have you with us. Several of you have said that you're coming. I just need to know so I can pass on the information to Brother Josh. This is for young or old, okay? It doesn't matter. Bring, come. Whoever you are, we'd love to have you. But this is specifically, sorry ladies, for the men. I'm not trying to leave you out, but I guess we're kind of leaving you out, at least in this case. But normally we would never do that. We would never even think of that. Well, anyway, I won't go down that path. Okay. Um, then also, this is a blessing. I just want you to be uh, praising the Lord for this. And Pastor Hamp has been with us as one of our staff pastors, talking about Scott, for almost uh, nine years now coming up. His anniversary, his ninth anniversary is coming up. So we've been greatly blessed by the, his ministry here. All right, well, Scott has already prayed for us and opened our service, so let's get into part two now of the sin of the anxious heart, okay? The sin of the anxious heart. We started this last time in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 6. This will finish us in that chapter as we conclude with these thoughts from our Lord today as we didn't get through all of them last time. But uh, if you're like me, now you listen to what my wife was saying about Frankie and you know the life that you're living and all the anxiety that can come with life, right? I'm not alone in the room this morning, am I? No. Each of us would say, yes, I understand what it means to worry, I understand what it means to be anxious. And so the Lord knows that. And we're blessed to have a Father who does not want us to worry. So let's stand and read together in honor of His Word. And I think you'll see why we do this even more so. Uh, as we get through the balance of this message from what he wants us to know about really the foolishness of worry. So let's pick up in verse 25. We covered this, but we want to cover all of it in context again today. For this reason, I say to you, do not be worried about your life. Boy, wouldn't, wouldn't it be wonderful just to stop right there? And couldn't we just do that? As to what you'll eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Just look at the birds of the air. They don't sow, they don't reap or gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you being worried can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Do not worry then, saying, What will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Amen. Praise the Lord. You may be seated. Okay, very powerful, powerful words from the Lord. Now again, last time, uh, and as I've already mentioned, we learned and we acknowledged really the devastating effects of the sin of worry. And we called it that because that's really what it is. And we talked about how you and I just continuously feel this weight of anxiety. We feel the concern of worry and all the issues that cause us to worry. We're prone to worry about the big things in life and even the little things in life, uh, the money uh, that we have or don't have, 
the proverb says that a poor man goes to bed at night and gets a good night's rest, and the rich man lays awake at night wondering who's going to steal all of his money. And so whether you're on the plus side or the negative side of money, money is a worry for people, our health, uh, the COVID situation is just going on ad nauseum. Our nation, we talked about all of these things. It's just that many, many people are so affected by worry There are people who are losing their jobs through all of this, and that's causing a great deal of anxiety. I was just talking to somebody just a moment ago who has been, uh, is currently looking for work or to finalize some work. Uh, Families are dealing with the issue. Uh, The enormous amount of money that's spent on the subject of worry and anxiety. I'll read an article from the American Journalist. American Medical Journal here in just a moment to help you to see the number of dollars that have been spent of just over the last 10, 15 years on the subject of worry, the medications, the medical supplies. In fact, let me just read this article for you right now. This is from 05, but it does give us some insight into what the world deals with. And I shouldn't say, when I say the world, I'm talking about the U.S. alone. The lifetime prevalence of anxiety disorders is approximately 28% in the United States, with more than one of every four adults experiencing at least one anxiety disorder in their lifetime. Now, that's the way the public and professional realm puts it. But that's a quarter of the population, at least back in 05. Accordingly, anxiety disorders place a significant economic impact on the U.S. health care system, The total annual cost of anxiety disorders has been estimated to be more than between rather $42.3 billion and $46.6 billion, of which more than 75% can be attributed to morbidity, mortality, lost productivity, and other indirect costs. In comparison, the total economic burden of coronary artery artery disease may be as high as $133 billion. They're just giving us some comparison rates here, which is extremely high, whereas the asthma may be as high as $16 billion. Even more compelling is that the total cost estimate for anxiety disorders comprises more than 30% of the total expenditures for medical illnesses. 30%. The cost of anxiety drug therapy accounts for 53% of the drug expenditures for mental illnesses. Now, that was back in 05. Now, I found an article or a paper, really. It was a dissertation that was written for a doctorate degree by a student from the University of Tennessee who put this online. And this was done back in 2013, talking about this very subject. In 2013, the societal cost of anxiety disorders was estimated at $48.72 billion dollars. And that's an increase of $2.12 billion since 05. Now, for you and I who are billionaires in the room today, that's not a lot of money, right? You can laugh at that because we're, we're not billionaires, right? Now, the point is that $2 billion is a huge amount of money to be placed into such a subject. Now, I'm not trying to minimize the effects of it or anything like that. I'm just trying to give you some idea of how overwhelming this subject is just in the United States. The counseling agencies are going crazy trying to even find more and more people to go into the counseling field because more and more people are needing counseling over subjects that they find themselves worrying about. And it's much deeper than that, of course, but yet... This is the real heart of the issue. And so again, I'm not trying to say, just to be clear, that anxiety is not a real issue. It is a real issue. These numbers prove that it's a real issue. But what I am saying is, is what the Lord is saying from last time, is that anxiety is not something that any one of us as God's people should ever be overwhelmed with. We're going to feel it. We're going to deal with it but we should never let it ever get the best of us. In fact, the Lord said, if you remember, don't be anxious. It was a commandment. It's not just a suggestion. But do not be anxious. And more so, stop it. Stop worrying. Don't do it. And in fact, he says, if we were to ad-lib this a little bit, don't ever worry again. That's the Lord's command as he's preaching this particular section that we were just reading. And he's not talking about a specific area of life. 
He's talking about life as a whole. There are no caveats to this. There are no contentions to this. There, there are no qualifiers to this. The Lord is simply saying, and that's why I said in our reading, couldn't we just stop right here? Well, yes, we could. Because the commandment is, don't worry, period. That's the message of the Lord. Now, because the Lord knows that we do worry, and we're going to deal with this, he wants us to understand the severity of what worry really is and what worry really says. And this is where we were last week. We learned in verse 25, number one, that worry is sin because it denies God from being the one who provides true contentment. Remember that? Verse 25, let's read it. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Well, what you hear the Lord saying in that is, you spend so much time concerned and worried about the basic necessities of life, just understand your life is so much more than that. You're not going to find your contentment in the things of this world. You're not going to find them in the personal relationships. You're not going to find them in the basic necessities of life. You're not going to find them in the big things. Contentment is found only in the Lord. And that's why he said what he did. Your life is so much more important to the Lord, even than the birds of the air. As much as God loves them and created them to be a blessing to him and to us, you are so much more valuable than that. And then the second part in verse 26 is where we were and where we finished last time, is that worry is sin because it denies God's ability to care for us as our heavenly father. He loves us. He is our father. He is the one who has provided everything that we need. And again, this is where he gives the example just to point out how the Lord loves us. He says, look at the birds. Just take a second and look at creation and see what God has done for the animal world. And look at the flowers, what God has done to promote their beauty and his care for them. And they don't need anything. They're perfectly content in everything that they have and the, the way they are. And so his message simply is to worry about the basic necessities of life is so unnecessary, it is absolutely sin. Because it says... Basically, to God as our Father, and let's put it this way, Abba, which is also another word, Daddy, right? Daddy, I don't really believe you. I don't really trust you. I don't really think that you can care for my basic needs. I don't think that you can give me the contentment that my heart is looking for. And that is a grievous sin to the Lord. And it's sin because it reduces almighty God to even less than a man, really. It changes him into being nothing more than that, nothing more than you and me. A man who makes a claim but doesn't keep his word, who makes a bold statement and can't support it, can't back it up, and has no ability to fulfill what he says he has the ability to fulfill. And let's just say it this way. It makes God a liar. I don't know about you, but I'm not prepared to make that statement today. But when you and I worry, beloved, listen, when you and I worry, what we're really saying is, Father, I don't really trust you. I think you're a liar. And I'm going to set out on my own to do it the way that I think it should be done. Now, you may not be thinking that way in your conscious mind, but the reality is that's exactly what you're saying from your heart. To deny who God is is to deny him as God himself. And so the Lord says, continuing on, basically, how many of you all can change your life by, ex or extend it even, or change your life in any way on your own? You can't. You're not going to be able to do that. It's futile. Your hands are in, your life are in the, is in the hands of your heavenly father. So to think any other way or to live any other way is really pointless and absolutely ridiculous, and let's just call it what it is. It is sin before God because it undermines him as God. Now that leads us to our point for today as we look at number three. I want you to focus in on verse 30 for a second. Worry is sin because it rejects God's command to live by faith. It rejects God's command to live by faith. Notice Jesus says here, after he's given to us what he did, he says, oh, you of little faith, you of little faith. 
Can you just hear the Lord saying that? Imagine yourself sitting there on the hillside as the Lord is teaching these, this particular subject and he looks at you in that wonderful look that he would probably look at them with and say, you have little faith. Oh, you have little faith. Well, I thought about that and I, and I, I thought it would be good for us to talk about the subject of faith and that's what I'm going to spend the balance of our time today and then we'll cover the last two points fairly quickly. But I want you to understand with me what faith is all about. So let's go back now to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. If you understand the context of the book that is written by an unknown author, some people have tried to figure it out. We studied this book a lot of years ago, uh, but it is a letter written to God's people, the Jews basically, Jewish believers, and trying to bring some back into the faith. Some are doing well. Some are falling by the wayside a little bit. And so it's an instruction book, if you will. And part of the instruction is, is to remind them about the importance of faith. And so look with me now in verse 1. I want to read this whole chapter, but I want to talk about verse 1 first so we're understanding what God is meaning by what faith is. Faith, he says, is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And let's just define that because that's kind of a mouthful. He says faith is assurance. The word assurance, simply if you were to define it or to break it down it's to, in its word meaning, would say essence or content. The life that is lived in light of the truth of God so much that it is absolutely assured of its truth. Now let me say that again, or at least in a different way. To be assured is to live in such hope that you have 100% assurance of what you're hoping for, without equivocation. In fact, one writer says, faith is the present essence of a future reality. And that's what the Old Testament saints believed. And that's why we're given the things that we're given in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, as a reminder of what faith really is, is the assurance 100% that what is going to come to pass, and we'll see this in just a second, is actually factual. It's not knowing because you're there, but it's knowing because of what God has said and because of who he is. The same writer said this, true faith is an absolute certainty often of things that the world considers unreal and impossible. My wife just stood here a few moments ago and gave to us facts that the world would say, okay, chance, luck. But you and I know, as people of God, there's no such thing as luck. There's no such thing as chance because our Heavenly Father does all things and is always in control of all things, right? And so we sit here this morning and our hearts rejoice over what we're hearing, but that's exactly what we've been praying for. Because we're assured of our Heavenly Father's care over us. And we've been seeing Him respond in the life of my brother-in-law. And that's a beautiful thing. The meaning behind the second part of the verse, let's look at Hebrews 1 again before we get into the balance of the chapter. He says, faith is the conviction of things not seen. It really carries the meaning a little bit further. It's basically saying the same thing, but it just overemphasizes the point. Really meaning to have full assurance demands an action. In other words, you cannot say, I am a person of faith, I have 100% assurance, and do nothing with that assurance. It is to go the next step, which says, I believe, therefore I will act upon my belief. And I will let God do what God does. And so the Hebrew writer says, that was these people. And you're going to hear in this reading that these people were so assured by God's reality and who he was that they acted upon that assurance. Let's read it together. Verse 2, for by it, I'm in Hebrews 11, by it, it being faith, the men of old gained approval. By faith, we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God 
so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. Let me just pause right there, and I'm not going to teach through all of this, but just understand that what the Lord is starting us with is, let's go back to the beginning here for a minute. Not one of us in this room or the people sitting on that hillside were at the moment of creation, were they? They were not there. But they believed that it was real because they saw the factual evidence of it. But what the Lord is saying here to us in verse 3 is that we understand that the worlds were prepared by God, not because we were there, but because of what he, we see out of what he said he did way back then. And so we believe that this was God. Now let's look at the people. Verse 4, by, by faith, Abel, that was Cain and Abel's, that Cain and Abel, brother, uh, children of Adam and Eve, offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. This is why Cain killed Abel. God testifying about his gifts, and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. And that's true. Again, I'm not going to teach through all this, but just understand. God's saying, we have the reality of Cain's and Cain and Abel's life. Abel's life still speaks to us through the word of God and through that situation. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. And he was not found because God took him up. For he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. Skip down to verse 7. By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is in accordance to faith. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive, even beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful who has promised. Therefore, there was even born of one man, and him as good as dead, at that, as many descendants, as the stars of heaven in number, and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. And we know, historically, contextually, according to the Bible, Abraham and Sarah were in their late 80s when this event actually occurred. And that's what he's talking about. Verse 13, all these died in faith. Listen, without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And if indeed they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have been, had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Now he gets back into the examples of faith. Look at verse 17. For by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was offering up his own only begotten son. It was he to whom it was, called, it was said, In Isaac your descendants shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau, even regarding things to come. By faith, Jacob, as he was dying, blessed each of his sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave orders concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure Ill, Ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkling of the blood so that he who destroyed the firstborn would not touch them. By faith, they passed through the Red Sea as though they were passing through dry land, and the Egyptians, when they attempted it, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. 
By faith, Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weaknesses were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection, and others were tortured, not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised, because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us they would not be made perfect. Now that's a wonderful truth from people who have followed God by faith, believing in what God had promised, but not even having seen the fulfillment necessarily of the promise. But the key is in verse 6, and I purposely skipped that because I want to come back to it just for a second. Go with me to verse 6 now. And without what? It is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Listen, what God is saying to us and from the mountainside is that to live by anything other than faith is an act of rebellion against God himself. And this is what makes it so serious. And so as people of God, we're to live what we say we believe. We're not to be people who profess to be people of faith and then show no action from our faith and show nothing to the watching world that this God that we say that we believe in actually is God. We are to follow him according to what we say we know is true. And what we know is true comes from his word. And so in the context of daily provision now, let's go backwards just for a minute. Jesus says, oh, you of little faith. So little faith. And can't you just hear the Lord kind of saying it that way? Oh, you of little faith. If there's anyone in the entire realm of creation who created all things, in the realm of everything man knows, it is God who knows all things. And can you imagine God in that simple sentence just looking at the crowd and saying, so little faith, so, so little faith. You're so unconvinced about the truth of God. That's the Lord looking at the people saying something like that. But it goes on because he would say, because you're not convinced, you have very little. Now here comes the definition in Hebrews 1. Because you're so unconvinced, you have very little assurance that God will provide your needs. That's what it comes down to. Because you have so little assurance, because you're so weak in your faith, you have little conviction to believe your needs will be supplied. This is what he's saying. I hope you hear what he's saying, beloved, because it's almost as if the Lord is saying, do you understand who my Father is? Do you understand who I am? Do you know what I am capable of? Then why do you live with such little faith? That's the essence of the Lord's message. And he uses some illustrations here to help us from Hebrews, <clears throat> excuse me, to just think about what God has done, to imagine, just with me for a moment, how God spoke, we're told in Genesis, God spoke literally the world into existence. God spoke it just to use that as an illustration. Then he breathed life into Adam. And Adam became a living being. And if that weren't enough, we just pass, fast forward through history and we come to the cross and we then realize out of truth that God himself came 
as a man, fully human, fully God, to sacrifice himself so that our sins would be forever paid for. So that you and I would have eternal rest with him. And you and I say we believe that. We look at the scriptures and we say, yeah, I believe God did all that. Yeah, I believe this, 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 and this and this. And I believe that Jesus died for my sins on the cross. And yet, every day, we encounter something that causes us to become worried and anxious. And Jesus said, that's sin. It should not be that way. And actually, what happens is, Satan comes along and robs us of what little we do have. That's really the parable of the soil and the sower. Let me just read it for us in Matthew 16. It tells us, or Matthew writes for us, Jesus went out of the house he was in and was sitting by the sea, and large crowds gathered to him, and so he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd was standing on the beach. You can just imagine that scene. And he spoke many things in parables, saying, Behold, the sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell by the road, and birds came and ate them up. Others fell on the rocky places where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up because they had no depth of soil. But when the sun had risen, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. Others fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out, and others fell on the good soil and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Now, this parable has some meaning to me. I told you about my woes with sowing grass seed, right? Well, it's kind of exciting now as I look across the yard. I'm seeing some green hue beginning to grow up under the areas that we uh, actually did it right. But there's a lot of patchy spots out there. There's the clay spots where the seed, I can go and walk by and I can see the seed on the, the clay where it's not penetrated down into the ground. I can see some places where the seed is kind of taking root a little bit. Well, that's the illustration that the Lord is giving here. Okay, so as a farmer, people would have understood that. It may not be so clear to us in our day, but that's the idea here. But now the disciples in verse 18 question him a little bit on this because they want to know what he's talking about. And he says, okay, hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom seed was sown beside the road. The one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no firm root in himself but is only temporary and when affliction and persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. Now listen to this one because this one really fits our subject for today. In verse 22. And the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word and he becomes unfruitful. The worries of the world. What the Lord is teaching us in that parable is to bear fruit is to live according to the kingdom of God. But the reality is you and I often don't allow the word of God to really go down deep in our hearts and take firm root. And when that happens, Satan can easily come along and exchange what we say we believe for the things that we think we can do in this life to create either contentment or some sense of happiness that we really can't create. And so he robs us of the truth that's there, removes it from our heart. And so when the truth of God's word is not there like it should be in the depths of our souls, giving life to us, it's replaced with worry. And we say, okay, I believe you, God, but not enough to really live what I say I believe. It's because we've been robbed. And we've been robbed because we're not allowing the Lord to put into our hearts what needs to be there. But the true believer, and this is what Jesus is saying in the parable, bears fruit. But what does that mean? Well, it's a spiritual term to say that those people live by faith and they act upon their faith and do what they should, continue to live by faith, always trusting what God can do to provide. And they live the balance of their life like that. And what I'm saying is when you neglect the word of the Lord day after day, beloved, 
it makes it very easy for Satan to come in and rob you of what little there may be there. This is why we constantly are wanting to put the Word of God deep in our hearts. It has to be a never-ending process because we're so sinful just naturally that we'll allow ourselves to let go of the things that are the most critical to us, namely the Word of the Lord, and Satan will take away what we've said we've believed all these years. And so something comes along, you name the subject, and we start putting our trust in what we can do to fix it, and then we realize we can't fix it, and so comes us and takes hold, and we become really a mess. For what God wants from us, and this is the whole point here, he wants you and me to live by faith, trusting him, believing him, accepting him for who he is. Paul would say it this way in Romans ten seventeen: Faith then comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So you come in on a Sunday morning or you sit in front of your Bible and you read something that you may not fully understand, but the spirit of God begins to open your mind and heart so that it is absorbed into your spirit. And when the cares of life come along, the Holy Spirit can re, uh, bring that back out and help you to make the decisions that need to be made so that you're not prone to worry, but you're prone to go back into what God has already said. You say, well, how do I grow in my faith? Well, that's what Paul is just talking about. I want to grow in faith, you may be saying. How do I get better at this? How do I trust God? And how am I assured of the things that we're talking about from Hebrews 11? Well, it comes from hearing. Hearing what? Hearing the word of truth. Again, this is why... We have spent the balance of our ministry teaching the Word of God in everything that we do because my words have very little meaning. Your words have very little meaning, although they may be beneficial to the hearer at times. But the real help comes from God's Word, right? So you have to be continually hearing the Word of the Lord so that it's being penetrating it's penetrating down into your heart. Listen to what Paul says to the church in Colossae in chapter 3. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts. Beautiful truth. Trusting what he has done. Philip's a good example of this in John 14. Philip said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I not been with you so long, and you've, not, you've come to not know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father's in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on mine own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does the work. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. In other words, the Lord is saying, listen, Philip, you've been with me all this time. If you don't believe in who I am, at least believe in the works that I do. Let the example of what I do prove to you that I am who I say that I am. Let's go back to Colossians 3 for just a second. Look at these words that the Lord uses here through the Apostle Paul. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. You know what the word richly means? It means abundantly. We know what rich is. Rich is to have an overabundance of something, right? Well, the Lord is saying, let Christ's word richly dwell within you. Let it overflow out of you. Let it be overabundant in your heart and your soul, dwelling inside of you, meaning everything about the word of the Lord is to be coming into us. You see, we can't live our lives saying, God, I trust you, I believe you, I want to follow you, and follow that with, yeah, but. That's to deny God. That's to say to him, you don't know what you're doing. You don't know what you're talking about. No, what we are to do is to have the words of what King David said, your word have I treasured in my heart. For what purpose? Well, he goes on, he says that I may not sin against you. You see, it's the word of the Lord that keeps us from sinning. In context, we could say it's the word of the Lord that keeps us from being anxious. 
That's what Jesus is saying in his sermon. And so again, the reason you and I worry is because, let's just say it like it is, there's not enough foundational truth in our hearts to keep us from worrying. And so what we do is everything that I've just mentioned. We look to ourselves. We look around and we worry about what we have and what we don't have. We look down the pike of time and we say, what if? What if that, this, this, or button? We've got all kinds of words that we use for that. And we look at that instead of just listening to what the Lord has said and believing what the Lord has said to us and living by faith. Jesus had to get after the disciples at one particular point for this same subject. In Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 14, when they came back to the disciples... They saw a large crowd around them and some scribes arguing with them. Immediately when the entire crowd saw him, they were amazed and began running up to greet him and ask him, what are you discussing? What, what are you discussing with them? And one of the crowd answered him. And what's happening here is that Jesus is walking up, up to the disciples. A large crowd is around the disciples and there's having some, some discussion about some situation. And so he's asking them what was going on. In verse 17, one of the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought you my son, possessed with a spirit which makes him mute, and whenever it seizes him, it slams him to the ground, and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth, and, stifles, and it stifles him out. I told your disciples to cast it out, and they could not do it. And notice what he says to them. O oh, unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. And so they bring the boy to him and Jesus casts out the demon and the boy is okay. He heals him. Now, Jesus says the only way that this really works is through prayer. And he says that in the very last part of the verse here. But what he really meant by that is, is it doesn't matter what the situation is. The dependence needs to be on God. Everything that you do in this life needs to be the, through the assurance of who God is. They couldn't do it because their faith was so weak. Yet they were living in the midst of Jesus' life and seeing who he was and doing all that he did. But they couldn't believe because their foundation was weak. Let's go even to another story here real quickly and we'll keep moving. Mark chapter 6, back up a couple chapters. A very revealing and indicting comment by the Lord. Jesus went out from there and came into his own hometown. And his disciples followed him. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many listeners were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what is this wisdom given to him and such miracles as these performed by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Imagine that. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his own relatives and in his own his own household and he could do no miracle there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them and he wondered at their unbelief and he was going around the village teaching you see that word in verse 6 wondered that word means he was completely astonished now the context is Jesus had come into his own hometown the place where everybody should have known exactly who he was but yet they did not believe they would not accept him for who he was. All they could see him being is little Jesus who was brother to the sisters of Joseph and Mary and the brothers of Joseph and Mary. But Jesus was so aghast at their lack of faith, he didn't do any miracles there. Not because he couldn't, but because they would not believe. It was all because of their lack of faith. And the problem was they believed in him, but they did not believe him. And that's the problem that most people have. We all at some point fall into that category. I believe in you, Lord. I believe in you, Lord. I believe in you. But what we're really saying is, I believe in you, but I don't believe you. And that's where the problem is. And so what do we do? Since we don't believe him, even though we believe in him, we try to figure it out on our own. And since we can't figure it out on our own, we worry. And anxiety takes over. Let's go back to Matthew. Very simply, the Lord is saying, worry 
is diametrically opposed to faith in God, especially for people who are followers. Listen, do you know that the church, beloved, true believers, should be in the front of the line when it comes to true faith, right? We should be the examples. Worry, quite honestly, should not even be a part of our vocabulary. I mean, let's just get as basic as we can. Worry should not even be a part of our vocabulary. And maybe that's a test for us. Maybe when we use the phrase, oh, I'm kind of upset or worried, and you know, we hear ourselves use the word worry, maybe we need to change it to something else. Because the Lord is saying there is no reason ever to worry. Because worry takes away from who he is. And that's why it's such a great sin against God. All right, let's go on to the next one here now and finish up this pretty quickly. Worry is sin because it denies, this is number four, because it denies the truth that God knows what is best for us. Worry is sin because it denies that God knows what's best for us. Look at verse 31. Do not worry then saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. In other words, you and I have nothing to worry about because God has already said he's going to provide our needs. To worry about these things is what the world does. That's what Jesus is saying. The word Gentiles there is just a simple way of saying this is the world. Those people who don't have a heavenly Father, they need to be concerned. They have to get up every day when the alarm clock goes off and they have to rush out into a society where there is no assurance of what's coming. They have to go make it happen. You and I go out because that's God's word to us. We're to work, but we're to always trust that God through our work and through what we do during the day will provide for us. And so it's a great sin in that way. We should never live like that. The world says, you know what? According to 1 Corinthians 15, hey, this life is hard. It's difficult. I'm, I got to do it all myself. So according to Paul, he says, let's eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we what? We die. And that's the philosophy that the world has to live with because they have no other hope. They have no one to put their confidence in. There's no one to have the assurance like you and I have. And so everything becomes, okay, well, I guess this is the best it gets, and so we might as well just have a drunk fast. And that's not everybody, of course, but most of the world just says, okay, i got to do it on my own. But listen to what Jesus says. Look at verse 32. Your heavenly Father knows what you need. He knows that you have need of all of these things. Now, why is he saying that? Well, he's just simply supporting what he's already been talking about this whole time to live in constant worry is to deny God and the fact that he knows what you need you and I are called to be different from all of that and Paul said in Romans 12 too, don't be conformed to this world don't live like the world don't let your life be anxious if we want to be in context here over the things that you have no control over but let your mind be renewed how is it renewed? By the hearing of the word. Putting it down in our hearts. And that renewing becomes faith to us and we begin to trust God. All we need to do is follow what God said. The best description is what Paul said in Philippians 4. I love this. Be anxious for what? Nothing. Now I'll bet you if you were to take that verse in just a human way of thinking, you would write that out and you would begin to list all the yeah buts. Right? Right? That's what we do. We look at that and we say, be anxious for nothing. And immediately in our human minds, we go through all the reasons why that doesn't make sense. And we categorize and we come up with a list of all the things that we're dealing with. But as Jesus said in his sermon, Paul is saying the same thing. There, there are no ifs, ands, or buts here. Be anxious for nothing. Don't do it. You say, well, then what am I supposed to do? Well, Paul answers that. 
But in everything, well, what are you talking about, everything? Well, make your list, right? Make your list. And that includes, that becomes everything. By prayer, there's us communicating, and requests or supplication with a thankful heart. Let your request be made known to God, and the, here it is, this is what we were looking for back in the first step, the peace of God. How much peace do you think God has? Wow. Never thought about that. A lot. Infinite. The peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. What's Paul saying? He's saying, listen, when you trust God for who he is, he gives us an inner calm. There's the contentment. He gives us an inner calm and inner contentment based on the confidence that we have in God, knowing that He will do what's best for us. That's why Paul could write Romans 8, 28. For all things, what? You say it. For all things work together for the good to those who love Him and are the called according to His purpose, right? All things work together for the good of those. Why? Because our confidence is in Him. We're surrendered to him. We let him do in us what he knows is best to do because Jesus just told us he knows what we need. So why deny him the joy of putting contentment in our hearts which will guard us, Paul says, from the tyranny of Satan robbing us from the things that we try to give up and do on our own. So instead of worrying, look at verse 33. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And guess what? These things that he's talking about, all these things, that's everything you're worried about, all these things will be added to you. In other words, put your energy into God and his kingdom work. He's not necessarily talking about the physical kingdom here. could be. But more so, he's talking about the realm of God's sovereign rule. Seeking his will for you. Put your mind and heart into righteous living, pleasing God. That's living a kingdom life. That's following by faith what God has said to do. We live righteously. Paul said it this way. I don't consider my life, this is Acts 20, verse 24. I don't consider my life of any account as dear to myself. How about that? What's Paul saying? I don't focus on the things of this world. I don't consider my life that important. He would say to Timothy in 2 Timothy, I'm ready to be poured out as a drink offering. And that was a type of offering. And the time of my departure has come. In other words, he knew his days on earth were limited. I fought the good fight. I finished the course. I have kept the what? The faith. The faith there is the body of belief, the substance of the gospel. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Where was Paul's heart? You know, sometimes we look at Paul's life and we go, man, what a guy. I mean, this is nobody can touch this guy. Talking about faith, what made him so unique? Nothing. He just believed what God told him. That's what he says here. And I know so confidently what God had told me that I am, as one of his children, going to live with him forever. That's where my eyes are. Not on the things here that caused me so much to get distracted. Peter said it this way. 2 Peter 3, The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, which the heavens will pass away with a roar of the elements, will be burned and destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. He's talking about the end times. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be? Well, let's just talk to Peter for a second. We're having a conversation over some coffee, and Peter looks at us and says, why are you putting so much energy into the things of this life? It's going to burn up. You know God has already told us that he's coming back and he's going to remake this entire world. Why are you so focused on the here and now? Put your eyes on the kingdom. Don't get lost in the things that you can't have no control over. And so it's a great question. Ask yourself this morning, what sort of person should I be? What would be the answer? To be a kingdom person. 
a person who lives by faith. When you live by faith, the worries of this life will dissipate because your heart will be set on the things of God and not on the things of this earth. All right, let's finish now with verse 34. Here's this final thought. Worry is sin because it denies the future God has planned for us. And we've already talked about that just a little bit. Look at verse 34. Do not worry about tomorrow. Here's his conclusion. Do not worry about tomorrow. Do not worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Now he's gone through those other verses to get to this point. All of those were examples to prove this particular point. You have nothing to worry about. It doesn't mean that you don't plan. You know the phrase? Plan, 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 plan for tomorrow, but live like there is no tomorrow, right? Don't get wrapped up so much in the hope of what's going to happen lest you become like that guy who built all the barns. And Jesus says your soul is required of you tonight. To worry about tomorrow, Jesus says, basically is just absolute foolishness. You have no control over what's going to happen in the next few seconds. I mean, could we just say this? How, how many times do we worry over things that don't happen? I hope nobody's an insurance agent in here. But that's what insurance is all about. I mean, insurance is built upon fear. Now, I'm not talking there's not wisdom there. I have insurance. We have plenty of insurance, all that kind of stuff. But the basic foundation of insurance is the question, what about what you don't know about? How are you going to deal with that? right? How are your loved ones going to deal with that? Now, there's an element of wisdom in all that, so I don't want to dismiss that, but that's the basic premise here. We worry about things we have no control over. Things that we don't know are going to happen or may happen, may not happen, and we get all anxious about it. Why? There's no reason for it. In fact, let's just say it this way. It's foolishness for a child of God. If we're really listening and taking to heart what the Lord says here, he's telling us, listen, I am the God of your future. But not just your future, I'm the God of your day, today. And whatever you can't handle, I can handle. I'll work with you in all of this. All I want you to do is to live righteously right now. And when you live righteously right now, Today becomes tomorrow, and tomorrow becomes the week, and the week becomes next week, and the week then becomes the month, and the month becomes the year, and the year becomes five years and ten years. And we're there living righteously because we're just living righteously today, trusting God for His provision. You say, well, my life doesn't turn out to be like a bed of roses like you're describing, Pastor Bruce. Well, here's the thing that we also have to understand. The Lord has said he will provide our needs. But you understand that that provision may be to take us home. Amen? You understand what I'm saying? His provision for you and me may be to say, I'm getting you off the planet. Now we don't like that because there comes the anxiousness again. Right? It starts welling up in us. But that then brings us back to what we say we believe. So we just need to understand that. All the planning in the world is not going to keep tomorrow from happening. So Jesus says, hey, each day has enough trouble of its own. Concentrate on what you can do to get through the difficulties of today and let me handle tomorrow. Because I can take care of it. Now listen. I'll say it again. If you don't hear anything from the years of messages that we have done here, hear this. God does not want you to worry. You have no reason to worry. Ever. Right? Know what he's saying? Ever. Be wise, of course. But don't let your wisdom become an excuse for worry. 
Worry says, God, I don't trust you. And I don't need to preach all of that again. You understand the point. Listen, did you know you don't have any reason to worry? You know, I heard the Bible says that we don't have to worry. Did you know that God says we don't have to worry? I mean, think about it. We don't have to worry. You say, Pastor Bruce, you don't have to keep saying that. Yeah, I do. Yeah, I do. Yeah, I do. And I'm saying it from my heart too because guess what we're going to do tomorrow? Absolutely. We're going to worry because we're prone to worry. But what we need to remember is that God says, it's sin. It's sin if you worry because you're denying me as your father. Now, aren't you thankful that God is gracious and loving and kind and merciful and all those things to help us? He will help us, but God does not want us to worry. Okay? Don't worry about your life. Don't worry about what's going to happen, what's not going to happen. It's in the challenging times that we see God the most. I would never wish this upon my brother-in-law or anybody else, Frankie. But I can tell you this, and I know he'd be the first one to attest to this, and and our sister-in-law, my sister-in-law, Debbie's sister would say this. It is through this tragedy that God has displayed himself the most. Has your faith grown through what you hear about what God is doing in his life? I could hear the amens as Debbie was reading it. Well, you're amening because you're going, wow, God really does hear and care. Yeah, he does. Okay? So let's live as people who are full of faith and not worry about the things we have no control over. Boy, the contentment from that is awesome. And that's a great way to live. Okay, well, let's close in prayer. Father, it really does at times seem very unnecessary to repeat certain things, but we hear you doing that over and over and over and over again. We jump from one book to the next book and we see different people, different place, different time, but yet the subject is often the same because you know how hard-hearted we are and you know how prone to sin and especially now in this subject, the sin of worry we are. It just comes on us because of our nature. But we're so thankful this morning, Father, that we don't have to live that way. That we can surrender to you the life that you want for us and not try so hard to fit into the box that we want for ourselves. So Lord, we pray that as you work in our hearts, that as we face the week coming, today could be our last day here on the earth. We don't know. You know. But what we do know is that you're in control of all things. And you've promised that you will provide. Now, Lord, help us to live what we say we believe. And, Lord, may we follow you through it all and watch you display yourself as you do great and mighty things to make our needs be met. So, Lord, we surrender our hearts to you as always. We have to do that every day. We can't imagine going through this day without you. And so we praise you for your presence and we praise you for the joy of being your children. And we ask you all of this and honor you in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand, please? And let's drive this message home by trusting the Lord.